It's been close to a year now that I have been doing a series of teachings on the righteousness of God. I was not just willing to stay long on this subject, but there is something that is always new about God's nature. It is so deep, it's so wide, it's so rich and so refreshing. So the Lord had allowed me to stay long on this subject so that we can pick all that is of him and make it us so that we can make the most use of all he has in store for us. And really the subject focusing on God's nature has always caught my attention because it is an eyes opener. Each time we look at it, we see God in a new light. Each time we look at it, our eyes is brightened up and we are better able to reflect him. We are better able to trust in him. So I have kept my eyes on it like a very real gem that sparkles at all seasons. And really God is admirable and is admirable. So in this subject, I would still want to consider something different from what I've been looking at for some time. But yet there is a, a level of relevance. However, the fact I want to bring home to you is that righteousness is the study of God's nature. It is the study of God's character. It is the study of God's justice. It is the study of God's goodness. It is the study of God's mercy. And we all find all this in the scriptures. And that is why the Bible does not just only discuss God. It reveals him. God is not just an undisclosed father who is hiding behind the scene. Really wanting to be undisclosed. No, it's not such a God. He wants everyone to know him as he is. Because it is in knowing him that you realize who you ought to be. So the Bible does not discuss him. The Bible presents him to us. And based on my studies of the scriptures over the years, I believe that there are five reasons why God allowed the scriptures to be written. Five reasons. And I will mention them for you very quickly because it's part of our studies. Number one, I believe that the Bible is written to show you who God is. In other words, the Bible is a revelation on God's righteousness. The second thing is that it presents how God deals with people. That is, it shows us God's relationship with people. How God relates to people. How God treats people. And that is quite interesting. The knowledge of that helps us to better relate with them also. Number three things, the Bible also describes and demonstrates God's love for mankind. That is, this love is portrayed, is depicted and demonstrated in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and the restoration he brought to our soul. In that he makes us God's own legally. The fourth reason I believe why the scripture was written is to show you who you became in Christ. And this is very fundamental. And the knowledge of who you became in Christ, you begin to understand that there is a fellowship and there is something to inherit. Two basic things. In this fellowship, 
in this knowledge of what Christ had accomplished for you, you can know God by intimacy. And when you come to in, 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 come to know Him by intimacy, there are things you catch out with. I mean, things you go out with, things you benefit. The Scripture calls them our inheritance. And the last reason is that the Bible was written to tell you how you ought to live. How you have got to walk in alignment with God. How you have got to cooperate with God. How you have got to be submissive to Him. To be discipled by Him. How you have got to pay service to Him. How you have got to be involved in good works. How you have got to walk in charity. How you have got to walk in love. How you have got to be more disciplined. How you have got to be more accountable. And how you have got to take your relationship with him very seriously. These are the reasons why the scripture is written. So in seeing the scriptures, we see Christ as his goal. In the knowing of Christ, we know the Father. So Christ becomes the focus of the scriptures. He is the theme of the scriptures. He is the central message, the central idea, the core information of the scriptures. So as a believer, you are called to unravel God for yourself and for others. And like I've said in my previous teachings, that the God you have not found out for yourself, you cannot present to others. Just as you cannot cook the food you have not eaten before, except somebody to told you. And even if somebody gave you something you have not eaten before, you will still find it very difficult to do if you have not tested it. So the job of a believer is to preach Christ as the only hope of the world. In that, in his light we see light. In his light we see life. In his light we see direction. In his light we see who we ought to be. And we see how we ought to go about life. And in doing that, you'll be discipling others for Christ. So that's what the Bible calls discipleship. This morning, we'll be looking at the scriptures together. As we read from the book of Psalms, chapter 23, of course, the very popular scriptures, verse 6. I read from KJV version. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is David talking here. And here is showing us his resolution. He's also showing us that which he is so convinced about. Different people know different things about themselves. And they can vouch different things about themselves. In the same way, this man began to show us that he's so convinced 
of something. That he had entered an intimacy with God. Whereby he now knows that this God is so committed that he can't neglect him. And as a result of that, he has become an agent through which his life dispenses all of God. It's like Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 saying that I am persuaded. And it's very good that a believer comes to this level of conviction of what he knows of God. Of what is sure of his commitment. So he said, Look, goodness and mercy will follow me. Not some days of my life. But he said, Every day of my life. Now, what is making this goodness and mercy to follow this man? We have got to find out. And what was on his mind, really, when he said goodness and mercy? We are going to find out. We are going to see whether he is praying for himself or is asserting what he had known by the heart or by experience. We are going to see whether this is a promise for us to claim or a promise of his presence that should go with us. I mean, we are going to check by the grace of God to see whether this is a promise of God's blessing for us or see maybe it is a promise of God's presence for us actually the presence is a promise but by the presence I really mean that whether it is God saying that I'm going to be with you and as a result of that I am going to make you an agent through which I diffuse myself I want to show you a scripture more before we come to this because it seems to me that this reality we are being confronted with was a reality Apostle Paul walked in. He undoed it. I want to show you how Apostle Paul presents this truth of God's word. Hallelujah. And that is in 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Hallelujah. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Chapter 2 verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always lead us in triumph in Christ and through us thy forces the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Thank be God. We bless God. Who had always led us to be victorious. The same experience of David. He leads me beside the still water. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadows of death, I will fear no evil. He leads me to triumph. Apostle Paul renders it. And through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. In other words, what David calls goodness and mercies that follows him, Apostle Paul calls it the fragrance of God's knowledge that is diffused through me. 
So the first point I will confront you with is the fact that this goodness and mercies that follows you is not just about what you benefit from God, what you receive from God alone. You have got to know this too well. That this goodness and mercy as it were, it's you being used in the hands of God. It's as if the Lord is saying that you are my battle axe. It's as if the Lord is saying that you are my ass head. It is like the Lord saying that you are my battle axe. You are my weapon of war. And with you, I will break the nation in pieces. With you, I will destroy kingdoms. It's as if the Lord is saying that I am raising men. And I'm putting myself on the inside of them to be on the display for me. I am raising men that will be dispensers of me. I'm raising men that will be possessors of me. Just as I'm the possessors of heaven and earth, I will find a home in them and through them I will diffuse myself. It's as if the Lord is saying that I am raising your children to be agents of change. Like I have chosen my son and anointed him with goodness and mercies. I am choosing men through whom I will pour out my healing anointing. Through whom I will show my graciousness. Through whom I will show my tolerance. Through whom I will show my divine nature. But bless God, David did not just write a verse of that portion of the scriptures. And let us to guess our own way into how we come into the reality. I mean, into the performance of the scriptures. He actually gave us five verses more for us to grasp what he's talking about. For us to grasp what he meant when he talks about the goodness and the mercy that will follow him. For us to see what he meant when he said that he had got to stay in attache to the house. So it seems to me that the Lord is saying that there is a connection between that which flows out of a believer and between where a believer is perpetually established. It seems the Lord is saying that there is a connection between what becomes your outflow out there and what is your closest life. I will show you a scripture more. In Psalm 92, the scriptures begin to provide us with the treasures that are found in the presence of God. And that presence is a kind of Eden Adam lived in. Now, that presence is not in a location, but we have got to create a location to assess it. Now, when I say it's not in, 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 in a location or it's not found in a location, I meant what Christ meant in John chapter 4. That no longer should men say or would men say that God is here and there. But that God becomes a spirit and anyone that can step into the spirit can connect him. So there is a condition to becoming a vessel in the hands of God now. 
and that condition is that you have got to be in God's nature. You have got to you have got to be re, re-altered to be exactly who the Father is. Now let me show you a scripture more like I said. Psalm 92, David began to show something about the treasures and the wealth that is found in the presence of God. And if God will permit me, by his grace, I shall want to see what that presence of God is. I shall want to consider what David meant when he said, look, guy, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But then I am wise enough and I will do everything to stay in connection to where it comes from, the house of the Lord. Christ speaking about the house, when he entered into the temple, he sent out those who sold and trade in the temple. The money changers, he overturned their tables. The Tortudorf sellers, he sent them out and he made a profound statement about the house of God. He says, guy, he said, my house will be a place of prayer. So what is the house of the Lord? It is a place of communion. Apostle Paul picked it up in Hebrews chapter 10. He said, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of God, the company of innumerable angels, to the general assembly that is registered in heaven, and to, to, the, to, the, to the spirit of just men made perfect. In other words, this house is a place of communion. It's not your church. It's your closet, more practically. So David seems to be saying that as I relate with God and I move out there afterwards, there seems to be something that flows out of me. It is an outflow of God's presence that had overed over my life. Look at what he said. Psalm 92 from verse 10. But my own you have exalted like a white ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eyes also have seen my desire on my enemies. This is just like a recast of Psalm 23 anyway. My ears hear my desire on the wicked. Who rise up against me? The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. Who is the righteous? A just man. Who is the righteous in this dispensation? Because there is a generational, I mean dispensational, I mean periodic definition of righteousness. As at the time this writer was writing, when he mentions the righteous, he means the flawless. And that flawlessness is seen on two grounds. One, that his conscience is free of guilt like Job was. To maintain a conscience that is perfect towards God. To be deliberate in walking in uprightness in your dealings with man and God. And number two, that you are flawless in the law of Moses. In that, you have so much committed, you have so much learned the law of Moses and the basis by which you deal with others. But now in Christ, that's a, a different definition. Righteousness in Christ means faith in the finished work. It means identification with what Christ has done for you. So there are two different things. And that was what Apostle Paul wrote extensively about in Romans chapter 10. 
that there are two kinds of righteousness the righteousness that is attained by the law which God had discarded with and the righteousness that is attained by your conviction of who Christ is which God is in terms with and which God recommends but here this scripture is talking to us whether to men of those generations or to us he describes a new state in God which he calls righteousness a state of perfection he said this man that has attained that state by faith in Christ shall flourish like a palm tree he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon these are metaphoric descriptions I mean the figurative descriptions of what happens to a man and so also I believe that what David was speaking about in Psalm 23 is not just an excitement. It's not just expressing his thought because he's so excited or because he won a jackpot or because there was a windfall or because he had just brought down the earth of Goliath. Okay? He is speaking out of a conviction, out of an experience. The righteous shall flourish. Like a palm tree. You want to see what makes him flourish. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Why would they grow like a palm tree? Why would they flourish? Why would they prosper? Why would they have a balanced life in all seasons? Verse 13 says, Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the court of our God. This is a sheet code. So that when you begin to see the life of a believer different from every other kinds you've seen, you wouldn't begin to wonder as to whether it came from a good home or not. You wouldn't want to begin to see that he is like that because he's disciplined, or because he's courtful, or because he, he has regards for others. But you begin to see that this thing you see about him is an offshoot, a spring out of his father. He said that those who are righteous will be prosperous. And why would they be prosperous? Verse 13 says that they are planted in the courts of God. They are found around God. They intermingle with God. They interact with God. There is a fellowship and intimacy that exists between them and God. And as a result of this fellowship, there is a prosperity. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the court of our God. They shall bear fruit in their old age. They shall be flourishing and fresh to declare that the Lord is upright. You check that. They are not just only enjoying this problem. They enjoy it so well that they cannot keep quiet to themselves. And that was what happened to David. When you read from verse 1 to verse 5, you saw what David had enjoyed. And in verses, he began to bring us to the summary of what he had enjoyed. He called all of those things he had enjoyed, the goodness of the Lord. So this place says that, look, when that righteous man had enjoyed enough of God that he will be able to declare that God is righteous. That is, is upright. That is, is consistent. That is, is faithful. That is, is truthful to his word. And that is unmovable. He is a rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So in the light of these scriptures, we shall be seeing what was on the mind of David. 
when it says goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life first i want to see what actually was running on the mind of david when he made that statement so i want to see what he meant by that phrase goodness and mercies again i want to see if that statement is a prayer i want to see when that prayer becomes a reality in the life of a person when that story when that statement when that claim when that confession became a part and parcel of a man i want to examine when it is fulfilled so when i am there i know i have touched it Hallelujah. And again, we are going to look at the nature of God's blessing. If we say these scriptures is a promise, we are going to look at the object of God's promise so that pride can be checked. That when we see things flourishing, when we see the goodness expressing out of us, we will not one day allow our sleeve to rule our spirit. And we will see assumptions to what people do, what do people say about the blessings of the Lord? Yes, the scripture says that the blessing of the Lord makes rich. It has no sorrow to it. But what are the assumptions? What do mankind think when it talks about the blessing? More importantly, are we focused on what that goodness is? Then I will begin to look at what a vessel is. What makes a vessel clean enough to bear this goodness? And how does one jealously guard this that he rightfully appropriates, I mean dispenses this to the rightful people who need it? Hallelujah. Psalm 23 again. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. First thing first. I will first want to draw your attention to the nature of this goodness. That number one, it is inexhaustible. I will not enjoy it for 10 years. I will not enjoy it for 6 months. I will not just enjoy it for 35 years of my service as a civil servant. Or as an employee. Or as an employee of labor. Or as a CEO. I will not just enjoy it for six years in the secondary school. It will not be enjoyed for four years on campus. It will not be enjoyed one year in the den of the Boko Adams and the Fulani Earthsmen. I am going to go about this goodness all the days of my life. And I began to be suspicious that this same goodness is what God calls the anointing which he poured on Christ. Because the Bible told us that Christ went about doing good. But that goodness is a result of the anointing. 
And I feel that scriptures is not in any way different from the experience David is presenting here. Because before he moved on to verses where he began to assert that he had come to the place in his life where he becomes a dispenser of God's goodness. He had told us about the fact that the anointing had, called over, had come over him. So the goodness and mercy are not the goodness of lives. They are not the material blessings. They are not the good jobs. They are not the beautiful spouse. They are not the breaking of, of causes or evil covenant in your life. They are not the breaking of delay. It's not a marital breakthrough. It's not a financial breakthrough. It could include but it is far more. Because David said, look, what breaks about this goodness is the presence, the anointing. So it is very critical to be able to assert as to whether this goodness is about a sin or about a being. It's about the materials or the immaterial. It's about a substance or the insubstance. We have got to see whether this blessing, this goodness and mercy, is about the visible or the invincible. In Hebrews chapter 11, it was said of Moses that he followed the invincible. He will not enjoy the reproach and the goodness of Egypt. Boy, he would have caught that goodness and mercy. Where he had three square meals a day, 15 edibles in the week. He was a warrior prince, although he was an Israelite. But the scripture said this guy understood what goodness is. He knows it's not the material things. He knows there is something that has to pour out of his life. And that thing has to be so powerful that it can lead millions out of bondage. Oh, glory be to God forevermore. Like Abraham, he knows that there is something God will place in him that can remove the barrenness of Abimelech. He knows there is something God will put upon him that will help him to, to, to conquer the king that had, that had harassed all that powerful kings for 14 years. He knows that God is putting a mantle over him that will put an end to the menace, to a nagging problem that had disturbed the whole region for 15 or 14 years. The same blessing that can silence the devil. It caused the goodness. But as though that is not satisfactory enough, can we begin to see that this blessing can likely be talking about God? But so that you will not feel as though I'm just trying to reach a conclusion that the scriptures is not actually giving us or that I'm trying to trudge the ground the scripture is not giving us to trust. Maybe we can begin to see all the intention of David by reading the whole of the psalm. So I want to invite you to read with me from verse 1. To grasp exactly what was running on the mind of David and what was what he was talking about. I would have made reference to verse, to chapter 22. But you know, this is a poetic scriptures. It's not an historical account. It is a reflection. So, we have got to look at the context of this scripture in the whole of the chapter. We cannot join another. We can make reference to other scriptures that look like, like I've done. But that, we have got to look at the old thoughts. Like you are studying a poem. The flow of expression. 
and what is driving out. Because obviously this verse is a conclusion of what this man has been talking about. So when it talks about the goodness of mercy, it must have been that there is something he tagged, he tempted, he caught, he defined, he explained, he conceptualized to be the goodness. And we must unravel this before we can begin to see the relevance of this in your own life. And when you enter into it. So, Psalm 23 again from verse 1. It's Psalm of David. It was David I was writing. The Lord is my shepherd. That's a, a, a great confrontation. I shall not once. That is interesting. The Lord is the one leading me. So, first, it's not about a thing. It's about the Lord. And the word Lord means the owner. It's the word Adonai. The Lord God. The owner of things. The creator of the heaven and the earth. You know that was David saying that. I am with the source of all things and with the cause of all things. And because of that, I live in perpetual provision. So this goodness is not just the goodness of what this man enjoyed. He's saying that, look, guy, never you envy me. There is a secret beside this, you see. I said, look, he had made me to lie down in green pasture. He had brought me to the place of rest. He laid me beside the still water. My soul is calm. I am refreshed. He restores my soul. In other words, this guy had been so troubled in time past. But now immediately he came in contact with this God. His life had been refreshed. He's now renewed. He's restored means that he's re-energized. He's revitalized. And let me tell you this. Since the Sunday before us is vessel of goodness and mercy, the Lord began to tell us that when God is calling you, he's not trying to waste your life. He's trying to add values to you. One, two, that God will never make you a distributor of what he had not called you to enjoy. You know, these guys involved in dispatching of items, you know, you could place an order for whatever, say a, a washing machine, say a TV, or say a phone. And regardless of where you live, they will locate your house. And finally, the guy that is bringing that thing will not have that product at home. But it's a distributor. God is not such. God will never call you to distribute what he had not given you a taste of. Romans chapter 10 eats my heart now. The scripture says, I say, take the Lord and see that he is good. So the person presenting this Lord to be tasted as actually, actually tasted him. So he invites you. So in our relationship with God, we don't just invite people into an experience we have not touched. Rather, when we find a truth of the scriptures we have got to dwell in the place of the closest where god duplicates this experience in our life before becomes agents through whom this is revealed so god is not raising men who had not experienced him he will not ask to go and teach you over nisi you have not experienced god's provision so David said, look, this Lord is my shepherd and is also Jehovah Nisi, my provider. I mean Jehovah Jiri, my provider. He leads me beside the still water, I restore my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness. 
in the path of righteousness, in his ways. He showed me his ways. He showed me the path of justice. He shows me how to live my life. He shows me how to go about life. He shows me how I ought to live. He shows me the kind of person I ought to be. And because of that, even though when it seems so rough with me, it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because there is a presence with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. And that's a metaphoric description of God's word and his place in our lives. He prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. No matter how difficult it is, this guy still fend for me. This God still fend for me, rather. In the presence of my enemy, you anoint my head with oil. You protect me. Actually, the eastern farmers use the oil to protect the animals from the flies that bite them. It's a protective device. My cup runs over. Then verse says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. These things are what I distribute, are what I'm preaching. He's telling you that, look, this is the realities available in God. And he's inviting you to step into it because he has stepped into it. So, David began to show us a room in God. Begins to show us a space in God. Begins to show us a dimension in God you might have not touched in substance, although it is placed in you and you have been caught into. So, what are David called surely goodness and mercy here? He calls it the presence of God, he substantiated it as God's presence. And I said, Guy, this thing will not follow me on Monday mornings. It will not follow me on Tuesday mornings or during the weekends or when I have my bills to pay pay, or when I'm fasting alone. He said it will follow me all the days of my life. So there is more in the text of these scriptures than we think there is. When David said, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. He's giving you a cheat code. He's selling you a secret available. And how you can connect to it. He's showing you the value of developing fellowship with God. Little word that Apostle John wrote. In 1 John chapter 1. He said, we have written to you so that you can have fellowship with us because I have fellowship with the Father. And if we walk in the light as it is in the light, you have fellowship with one another. Does that tell us something? Very clearly it tells us something. That this Father dwells in light and we have touched that light. So we invite you. And in fact, actually, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 John says that that which we have touched, that which we have handled, that which we have seen concerning the word of life. I said, now we invite you to partake with us. So this goodness is not just about what you have enjoyed. Because this goodness, as you shall find out, is what God had made available. He's not going to make it available. So there is more to the text of the scripture than you think there is. And first, it interests me to ask what God is saying to us in this text now. I also want to consider what was running through the mind of David when this expression flowed out of his spirit. Another thing I feel 
it is necessary to consider is the experience that brought about the scriptures as i also shall consider what that situation fits in to in our lives but i want to note that david is not praying here he's talking about an experience he's talking about an encounter he's talking about what he enjoys he's talking about an offer a provision that is available to those who have come to know God. The righteous. The righteous. One word we made right with God. Like we say in this dispensation. One word encountered God. One word experienced God. One word become a new creature. So David is expressing the effect of God's presence in and upon a life. And I want to believe that it's not just emotionally exaggerated. Rather, he is speaking of a truth, of a theology he had enjoyed. Could it be right to say that? Yeah, David is alighting the blessedness of following the leading of the Spirit of God. The reason why you are confused most times is because you have left God behind. You have not cooperated with him. You felt you can do it all alone. And oftentimes he has left you to try out by your skill. I wish I can show you a scripture. Let me look for it. Now, let me show you a scripture. In Psalm chapter 44. Psalm 44 verse 1 through 3. To the, chief music, to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. We have heard with our ears, O God, our Father have told us the deeds you did in their days in the days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the people and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword. Nor did their own arm save them, for it was your right and your arm and the light of your countenance because you favor them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Look at that scriptures. They got the land. So there is a commitment the Lord has for the righteous that makes him do anything to ensure. The delivery of that commitment. So I feel that it is necessary to ask what did David meant when he says goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life? What is the goodness and what is the mercy? The mercy and the goodness must refer to the shepherd. So, when he says goodness and mercy, he's talking about God's presence. And does it mean that he's talking about a promise of God's blessing or a promise of God's spirit or he's talking about both? 
Okay, let's say that that place is talking about God's promise. What is the nature of God's promise? Let me deal with those issues first. Now, when David said, goodness and mercy shall follow me, he is talking about God. How do I know? In Matthew chapter 19, In Matthew chapter 19, a young man came to Jesus Christ and he called Jesus Christ by a name. Now I want to show you the attitude of Jesus Christ and his claim to what that man said. I'm going to read from verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher. Look at the word, good teacher. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life, that I may live forever? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Ooh, that's beautiful. But if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandment. Now Christ said, look, entering the eternal life, and knowing who God is are two different things. But then if you know who God is to enter eternal life will be easy. So Christ made him realize that there is no one that is good. Now we have got to see the word good. Now the Greek word, there are actually there are two Greek words for the word good or goodness. But permit me as it were now to pick one. Now the Greek word for the term good. Is the word agathos. Agathos. And it's a good constitution of nature. What constitutes the nature of a person? The attributes of a person. That which is known of a person. The truth about a person. The character about a person. That which distinguishes a person from another. It means the honor. The traits, the dignity, the uprightness of a person. Agathos. That which is good of a person. And Christ said, look, nobody is good except God. And funnily, the word agathos is both primarily used as a noun, not just as an adjective. So when it says good teacher, no, that man uses it to be an adjective. Good teacher. Good modifying the word teacher. But Christ said, look, it's not about being a good teacher. It is good at this, that is goodness. It is a noun. It is a being. It's not a description. It's not an admiration. It is a being. It's an identity. So when David said, Goodness and mercy is talking about the presence of the shepherd that had led him where there is green pasture. He's talking about the shepherd that prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemy. He's talking about the shepherd that had been with him even the valley of the shadow of death and he fears no evil as a result. I said, this guy is with me as a result. I become a vessel. And what is a vessel? A container. Oftentimes, the scripture refers to be your body. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 4 talks about the fact that everybody should learn how to possess his vessel. Now, the word possess there means to control his body. So, there is something in the body. 
So it is good to say that a man is not all body. That by the design of God, God designed you to be a carrier of God. So it is an error for a man to have nothing about his life but his finance. To have nothing but his cosmetics. To have nothing to show but his beauty. To have nothing to show but his business. To have nothing to show but that he married. You must carry God also. That is your primary design. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 5 says, He that had designed you for this carriage of himself is God. Now, let's see how this thing played out in the life of Jesus Christ himself. We are unfolding what goodness is and what springs out of the goodness. Now, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. We saw this thing played out in the life of Jesus, this goodness. But we are looking at what this goodness is so that we can see for ourselves as to whether we have come to the place of this goodness or we are still laboring to enter it. So that you will not start looking for what you have got with you already. Now, look at verse 38. Peter explaining things to the co-apostles. He said, Our God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Never you forget David had told us that he anointed my head with oil. My cup runs over. And surely goodness flows out of the anointing. So the goodness is a product of the anointing. And the anointing is in attachment, is in intimacy, is in connection with the house of God. Those who are planted in the court of God. So God seems to be saying to us that when you fellowship with me, I will pour myself in you and make you a blessing to others. Just like he told Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to others. How God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with what? With the Holy Ghost. So when David said he anointed my head with oil, it's not the Goya oil. It is the Holy Ghost. So the Goya oil is a symbolism or a symbolic description of the Holy Ghost. God wants to smell on me the Holy Ghost. And when I carry the Holy Ghost, I go to a place where death is present, I dispel it. I go to a place where darkness is present, I dispel it. He's anointing my spirit, not my handkerchief. Not my forehead. So if your pastor anoints your forehead and you don't stay in the presence of God to make the anointing to, 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 to reside in your spirit, there's the word I want to use, is not coming. To be residual in you, I like that word. To be receptive in you. A day will come. Like Gehazi got the rod of Elisha and, she could, and he could not raise the dead. You will have the apron and you do nothing for you. Then you begin to doubt. Maybe you've sinned. How God smelled. The word anointing means to rub over. And how do you rub over without fellowship? Without contact? Without relationship? He anointed my head, David said, with oil. Then my cup, that the cup means my vessel, my body, my being runs over, flows out. So what he calls runs over is the presence of God. That is, it is of his fullness I have received. And when I became food and full with him, I became a channel through which he runs over to others. 
I become a channel of distribution. So it causes goodness and mercy follows me because it is flowing out of me because I am with the good Lord who is the source of all goodness. So this goodness and mercy is God. The life of Christ is described here. How God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about who? Doing good. Now, the word good here is different from the one we saw in Matthew chapter 17. The one we saw in Matthew chapter 17 is a constitution of a man's street. And it means agathos. But the word good here is the word juageteho. Juageteho. And juageteho means of, of a good, to do good to people. To be so benefit to people. To be of help to people. So this goodness is following you not so that you can enjoy the goodness. A tree does not eat its own fruit. It is so that you can be of help to others. So God make himself agathos to you so that you can be you agato you are getting hold to others. He makes himself of a good trait. He shows himself his uprightness, his goodness, so that you can be good to others. That's the message of the scriptures. To bestow, to empower. May somebody never come near you and still goes the way he met with it. Your life is to alter people for God. He went about doing good, empowering people, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Why? For God was with him. In other words, the anointing of the Holy Ghost is also God because God and the Holy Ghost are inseparable. Although that is not enough. In James chapter, James chapter 1, Oh, hallelujah. In James chapter 1. James tells us that all good gifts and perfect comes from God. And he mentioned for us categorically that in him there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. All good gifts and perfect. Comes from God. You know, there's no variableness, no shadow of turning. So the goodness is God. Another good reference of the scriptures is in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25. Those six portions of the scriptures keep saying, and behold, it is good. God said, let there be light, and behold, it is good. And God separated the light from darkness, and behold, it is good. So the good gift, like James said, came from God. So for the good gift to come from God would have been that this God himself would have been good. So as the old Genesis was closing up in verse 31, the scripture says that, and God saw everything he had created all together. Behold, they are not just good, they are very good like himself. Tell will not permit us to see those scriptures. But check them up. So God's goodness is God's nature. 
is who God is. Hallelujah. We are made to enjoy God forever. We are made to enjoy God forever. Hallelujah. We have come to the place of rest for us. We are no more troubled by enemies in whatever way. Because we have come to the good father. And who is making us a dispenser of himself. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless God forever, man. James 1 17. Let me read from verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. Now check the word good gift and perfect. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Christ said, You shall therefore be perfect. As your father in heaven is, is perfect. In other words, the gift of God takes on the nature of God. He cannot give you a good gift. He cannot make you a distributor of goodness and mercy except his goodness and mercy himself. I'm not done. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes from the father of light with whom there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. And I must tell you that this goodness also is God's salvation. Is God's forbearance. Now let's see Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Verse 4. Apostle Paul told us about the goodness of God. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Check that. The worth of his goodness. The strength of his goodness. Now let's check something about the goodness. Or do you despise thou the riches of his goodness? God is good. God is the goodness. And the forbearance and long suffering. Not knowing that the goodness of God. Oh glory be to God. God is good. Leadeth thee to repentance. But after the hardness and impertinent earth treasure up unto the self wrought against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment, judgment of God. Now, the point I'm confronting you with is the fact that God is a good God. And what is this goodness? His ability to forbear, his ability to long suffer. And this is not just a trait, it is the being of God. It is who God is. So, when David said goodness and mercy, it's not talking about things, it's talking about God in. So when God is making you a vessel of goodness, He's filling you with Himself. And there's anything that should interest you, that you cry after, is that God will rest upon you heavily. Romans chapter 11. There's still a relevant scripture to this. Verse 22. Behold therefore the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity, but be but toward the goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. Now, what is called the goodness here? It is salvation. There's no time I would have taken through the whole scriptures. 
the deliverance of the people from the oppression of darkness. So this goodness that follows you, it's not a prayer that it shall follow you, it's following you. But now you have got to walk in the consciousness that you are a carrier of God's goodness. If you are saved, it is a carrier. So the word goodness is a term that describes who God is. So goodness is God's forbearance, it's long-suffering, which brings about salvation. And we still have other scriptures like Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 1, verse 11. The goodness of God is also the nature of God. Who God is, God's righteousness. And that is seen in Exodus chapter, chapter 33, from verse 11 to 23, and in Exodus chapter 34, from verse 5 to 7. Now, let me narrate what happened there. It took Moses and the Israelites to move from Egypt to Sinai two months. I mean it took them two months to move. And when they got to two, when they got to Mount Sinai, God told them they can't move further. So he descended on the mount and began to unravel himself, began to speak with them, and began to make Moses to compile the laws and began to tell Moses the need for them to be the tabernacle which will go amongst them. So for two years they were around Sinai. They built tabernacles and tents. They couldn't move further. The Lord was building a, nat- a nation and has given them rules as to how they are to live distinct from every other nation because where he's taking them to, he's taking them to that place because of the transgression of those present occupants. So he wants them to see his righteousness, see how he wants them to become. So it was necessary for him not just to talk about himself, but to disclose himself. Then after the completion of the laws, Two years is now past. God told Moses, it's high time you left this place. But Moses said, no, I'm not going to leave. I've enjoyed your presence here. At least for 40 days. In two times, I've been with you 80 days. And these people have been seeing, I've been hearing, I've been complying. Let us stay here. And God said, look, you have to leave. Because this is not the place. It's still far. It's the, the, the location, the site I'm giving to you is still far ahead of you. The best of God in the, in the future. But he has to lead you like he led Moses. He has to lead you like he led David. So he said, I'm going to lead you. Then Moses said, look God, if you will not lead us, that is, if your presence will not go with us, do not take us away from here. We have enjoyed it, that we are afraid to lose it. And God said, look, you won't lose it. I will give you rest. So when that presence comes, it brings rest with it. And that was what David said when he said that he leads me in the path of righteousness. He leads me beside the still water. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. There is a restfulness for me. And Moses asked something more. He said, God, show me thy glory. And the word glory means kadosh. Or sometimes we use the word shekinah. But it's much of Kadosh. In the Greek, that is in the Hebrew. It means Kadosh in, 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 in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it means Doxa. So Kadosh and Doxa means the value, the weight of. The net worth of a person. And God understood what Moses meant. He said, look, I understand. You want to see my face. Okay, you will not see my face. But he said, I will make all my goodness to pass before you. Now, let's see that. God said, look, I am... A good God. And all you have got to see to see my nature. Exodus chapter 33. 
Exodus chapter 33. And I read from verse. Thirteen. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in the sight, show me now the way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in the sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And I said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And I said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not ends. And therein shall it be known there that I and thy people have found grace in the sight. If it is, is it not in that thou goest with us, so shall we be separated, and I and the people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. So the presence of God is what distinct me from every other person out there. That's what the scripture is saying. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make what? All my goodness. Now the word goodness there is the word tube. My good things, my nature, my property. My traits, my fairness, my beauty, my prosperity. Who I am, I will make you to taste me. I will make you to experience me. I will make all my goodness to pass before you. Now, let's jump scriptures. Let's move to chapter 34 because of time. Now, from verse 5. Now, God descended. We want to see what this goodness is. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth, keeping mercies for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, that will not by means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. Does that tell you something? That this goodness is God's traits. The center we read in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Behold the goodness of God, which brings about his forbearance and his long-suffering. The same way he said, I, the Lord, the God, am gracious and long-suffering. That tells us that this same goodness is what Apostle Paul calls for us, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not for show. It's not for your own consumption. It is an evidence that you have come in contact with God. Is the fruit of the recreated human spirit. It is the nature of that new man you became in Christ. It is the outflow of God's expression. It is a substance of the things you owe for that you are going to live with God forevermore. So God's goodness is who God is. And God's goodness also expresses creative power and wisdom as seen in Genesis. Verse 4, chapter 1, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, and verse 31. Hallelujah. And I tell you that God will not make you a a distributor of what you are not a benefactor of. He is your benefactor, you are the beneficiary. He makes you enjoy first whatever he calls you to distribute. God won't allow goodness and mercy to follow you except he makes you good yourself. 
Goodness is God's nature. He told Moses, I will make my goodness to pass before you. Remember also what Christ told that man who came calling him good. He said, no one is good except one. That is God. So how comes goodness? It is the product of a man's recreated spirit. It is the product of righteousness. Apostle Paul sometimes we call it the fruit of righteousness. It is an outpouring of God's righteousness. The scripture says, He leads me in the path of righteousness. So, goodness is a product of righteousness. So, if we conclude that verse 6 is a prayer, then it meant that it is an answered prayer now for you in Christ. If you say it is a promise, then it is a promise you have entered into the reality because faith is the substance of things over. Then, if you say it is a it is it is a promise of the blessing then you have got to see that the end result of god's blessings to make you like himself now let's check first peter second peter rather second peter chapter 2 verse 3 second peter chapter 1 verse 2 what am i seeing peter's second peter chapter 1 verse 3 According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertains to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that had called us to glory and virtue. Verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Why are they giving us promises? That by this you might be partaker of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. So why is the promises given you? If you call that portion of scriptures a promise, the Bible says that the end result of the promise is to make you of God's nature. The promises are not God's nature, but they are the, the check you present at the counter where the nature is poured in you. He had given you great exceeding now, means inexhaustible promises that by these promises you will not just enjoy life, you will not just enjoy the goodness of life, but that you will become a partaker, a co-inheritor of God's divine nature. And this happens immediately you have escaped the corruption that is in the world through loss. In other words, immediately a man steps into Christ. It becomes a vessel. So if you say it is a prayer, the prayer is answered. You say it is a promise, the promise to make you a carrier of God. And if you say it is a presence of God, then you have got God now. Why? Because the fruit, that is the evidence of righteousness, is sown in all goodness. Back to the word of Christ. No one is good but God. Would it be correct to say that no one can be good or have goodness except he is born of God? Mind you, goodness is behavioral. It is good works. It is a result of one's yieldedness to the Holy Ghost. So it is pertinent we consider the kind of vessels carrying the goodness. What kind of vessel are you? Apostle Paul used images of wares in our houses to describe the kind of goodness that will be suitable to carrying this. I mean, the kind of vessel that will be suitable to carrying this goodness. He told us that there are different wares, different materials, different articles, different articles for different uses. 
Just like God said, I will raise Pharaoh to show my power in him. And that power is to destroy him and his enemies. Meanwhile, he raised Moses to also show his power, but to bring the people out of bondage. So there are different articles with different utilities. So what determines the usability of a man is not even God, but man. Your yieldedness. Your yieldedness. Your ability to submit to God's operations and workings in your life. Your ability to allow God to lead you as he wants to lead you. The ability to desist from being ruled by your own instinct. In Timothy, Second Timothy, to be precise, chapter 2, verse 20 to 21. Apostle Paul said in a great outline, many verses. But what became more pertinent in that statement is that if is that he said that if a man purges himself of certain things, it shall be a vessel usable and made for every good things. So the good news is that we are good vessels if we are in Christ and we are usable if we are in Christ. So it is an error if God is not under your skin, if God is not in your heart. And I tell you today, if you are tied with the yoke of sin, let Jesus Christ come into your heart. Christ said, come unto me, all you that labors and are heavily laden, that have yokes, burdens upon them. He said, there is a rest because I will lead you. He said, take my yoke upon, upon you, for my burden is light, and I will lead you to the place of rest. So a man and a woman must not just be all body, because you are not all body. You must be a container of God. You must be a channel, a means through which and through whom God poured out himself. Creation is the expression of God's goodness. Let there be light and there was light. And the phrase, behold, it was very good. That is, it is usable to express what God had in mind. So God is making you a vessel. God is raising your children as agents. The agents of change. Goodness and mercy can now follow you because now you are in Christ. Because now you are God's children. You are adopted child. The Bible said that he had predestinated us into adoption. Oh, to the praise of his glory by which he had made us accepted in the beloved. So you are accepted. You are usable. And never you think that that goodness is that somebody woke up your way and gave you some money. Or gave you a, a ride, or that you had promotion at your workplace, or that there was an accident, you escaped it, or that you had a windfall, or it's a jackpot, or a favor came your way, or somebody assisted you, or you escaped death. These are just general blessings. Matthew chapter 5. That you may be the father, your, that you may be like your father who is in heaven, who makes his son to shine both on the good and the evil. So, this one does not distinct you. Never you forget what we read in Exodus chapter 33. He said, I'm going to bring my presence upon you. And that is going to make the difference between you and somebody out there. Not the jeep. Not the car. Not your house. It's the presence. 
and you are a vessel for that. You are a container for that. Your body is the temple of God. God said, I will reside in you. I will live in them. They will be my God and I will, they will be my people and I will be their God. So you have got to put yourself of uncleanness. God is calling you to a place of submission. Apostle Paul said, if a man purges himself of certain things, it will be a vessel. So the implication of what God is confronting you with is the fact that you are a house of God. The Bible calls us God's oikodom, God's house, God's habitation. Ephesians chapter 2 said that he had made us the house of God. Let me see that scripture. Very interesting scripture. It's one of my favorite scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2. See what you became. Ephesians chapter 2, let me read from verse 16. Let me read from 15. Oh, let me read from 14. From 14. This scripture is just so, it's just so sweet. For he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Of course, between us and God. Having abolished in his flesh, in his body, the enmity, even the law of commandment, our inability to keep the law of God. He abolished the law of commandment contained in ordinances, in what God had ordained. And he did that to make in himself of twain one. That is, he wants to reconcile both the Jews and the Gentiles in one. To a new woman, so making peace, verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers. And foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, the word I want to pick is that word household, you are God's relative. Oh, glory to God. And the word household means oikois, or see, you can call it oikihos, belonging to a family, to have an intimacy with a family, belonging to a, to a household, or being adherent to a family. He said, you are now a member of God's family. You are God's relative. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophet Jesus Christ. He said, being the chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together grow at unto holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are built together. For what? For an habitation of God. God wants to reside in you. That's what makes you a vessel. For an habitation, the Greek word for habitation is the word katoi ketorium. And it means an abode where one lives. You are also built together as an habitation of God through the Holy Ghost. So you are God's vessel. And God is making you and your children to be a vessel. God is looking for something in your house. He's looking for a seed. 
It didn't just make you marry so that you can have a nice time with your wife. And so that you can enjoy life with your wife and children. In Malachi chapter 2, the scripture says that God is looking for a seed. He is looking for a seed. He is raising people whom he is pouring himself. And he does not just want to go out there. He wants to inhabit your children. He wants to be their oikodom. Where he resides. Where he lives. Where he is convenient. In John chapter 1, we saw three or, uh, three or two of the disciples of Jesus Christ ran after Jesus Christ. They asked where he lives, where he abides, where it's convenient for him, and he invited them to come. Jesus is calling you to come to the place it's convenient to live with, you with. I mean, he's calling to a place where he's convenient to stay with, and he's inviting you to come with him. There's a place that is convenient for the Father to live, is your spirit. Will you open it for him? Children are the heritage of the Lord. They are the only thing God has as a reward. Two scriptures. The psalm says that children are the heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is God's reward. Psalm 127, 103. And Malachi chapter 2 verse 15 also says that God is looking for a seed. Are you raising up seed for God? If you are too busy, can you raise your children to walk with God? God said of Abraham, he said, I know of Abraham. He will raise his children. That is amazing. He will raise them. He will instruct them. He will make them a vessel unto me. It will make them a cup that I can fill up with my oil, with my Holy Ghost. And they will spill over. Can you open your heart and say, Father, help me to prepare my children for you and to make my own heart available for you. Help me to be a diligent parent who by close monitoring who by paying attention to the character formation of my children, who by paying attention to their attitudes, to their reactions, to their responses, make them vessels, make them usable unto you. Help them to be vessels, honorable. Help me to teach them how to fellowship with them. To teach them how to walk with you. To teach them how to be submissive to you. To teach them how to position themselves. How to align themselves to walk with you. Father, this is a critical subject you are confronting us with. That our life is to contain you. We are not to travel through life in confusion. But that our bodies must be God's container. And today we open our spirit to that which is called goodness. We open our life to the mercies of God, which is salvation, which is God's forbearance, which is God's beckoning us to join with Him. Lord, help us. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus.
to be more submissive. To cooperate with you the more. To walk in submission. To yield our body. To walk in submission. To yield our body. To walk in submission. To yield our body. To the Lordship of Christ. And His reign over us. We yield. Live in me. Live in me. Walk in me. Walk through me. Make me a vessel. Purge me of every dross, of every death, of every gross, of every impurity, of every impunity, of every injustice. I come because I believe in the atonement work of Christ, by which only I'm rendered righteous. I yield to you, Father. Help me, Father. This is my cry, this is my desire, Father. That my life will be a reflector and a reflection of you. That my thoughts will be a reflect of your word. That the book of the Lord will not depart from my mouth. That I will meditate therein until my profiting appears to her. Help me, Father, to solely on a daily basis depend on you. Help me, Father, that nothing will dissuade me. Nothing will take me from your presence. Now, nothing will remove me from the house of the Lord. That my heart will be inflamed the more for you. Is the cry of my heart. Is the cry of my heart. Is the cry of my heart, Daddy. Help me. That like you anointed Jesus Christ who went about doing good, that the anointing will come strongly upon me that will be solutions to nagging problems that are deferred solutions in time past. To problems in the economy, to problems in the business world, to problems in the labor market, to problems in governance and politics, to problems in the educational sector, to problems to, to the teenagers that I will be a tool to whom and by who God is going to break the siege and the harassment, the tactics, the stratagem by which the devil are pulled down lives of young and old. I position myself, Father, that as you use Abraham to deliver Sodom and Gomorrah and every neighboring nations from the harassment of King Kleodoma. That my life will bring men to you. Is the cry of my heart. And I demand this. Because you said you have, you've, 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 you've not chosen me for nothing. And I wasn't the one who chose you in the first place. But that you chose me. That I may bear fruit. And that the fruit will remain. I don't want to be fruitless. Help me dear Lord. That is my desire. That is my cry. Help me, dear Father. This is my desire. 